You're listening to episode 14 of the Musicpreneur Mindset Podcast. Hey, we're Sub Radio. You're listening to the Musicpreneur Mindset Podcast. Here's your host, Suze, founder of the Rockstar Advocate. Hey there, you're listening to episode 14, Don't Get Screwed. I'm your host, Suze, a mindset coach to help freelancers and DIY musicians become full-fledged musicpreneurs by building sustainable careers in music. Now, last week in episode 13, we spotlighted our very first musicpreneurs, Subradio. If you haven't had a chance to listen, I highly recommend it. Each month from here on out, I'll be highlighting one musicpreneur in an interview-style episode, so be sure to subscribe if you don't want to miss the next one. But enough about the past and the future, today I want to discuss the legalities of being a musicpreneur. As a paralegal for over five years, I saw so many people walk into my boss's shop to find protection from a lawsuit that didn't have to be there if they had just protected themselves from the beginning. It's hard enough to get most musicians excited about learning the business side of the music industry, but for many, including a good number of the business-minded folk, the legal side of things continues to elude them. Many hear the word contract and immediately think of endless paperwork and paragraph upon paragraph saying something that most could convey in five seconds with two sentences. You ever feel that way? While many contracts can be as little as one page depending on the situation, the verbosity used in most contracts is there for your benefit. My boss used to tell me to think of it this way. The more vagueness or ambiguity that exists, the more room there will be for a good lawyer to find a loophole or argue a different interpretation of what's written to win a case in favor of their client. The more crystal clear a situation is, the less of a chance there is for someone to screw you over. But... If you don't read the contract and familiarize yourself with what that situation truly entails, the more likely you are to either violate the contract, which could lead to additional legal fees and fines, or be taken advantage of without ever realizing it. Lawyers aren't just there to dig us out of holes, they're there to help make sure we never fall into one in the first place. Yet time and time again, well-meaning people find themselves in legal nightmares because they avoid doing their due diligence, either out of fear that they'd never understand it, or because they didn't want to spend the money it would take to do so from the start. We call that being penny-wise, pound-foolish. Here's the thing, guys. When we sign our name to something, we commit ourselves to an agreement with another party, one that is either impossible, expensive, or messy to get out of should the need arise. Think about it this way. In most states, in order to drive a car, you need to pass a test and have insurance. It's set up that way to protect you and everyone else around you on the road. But when it comes to signing an agreement, there's no test. There's no course you have to take before you're able to sign your name. Your only insurance is educating yourself on what you're signing. In the music industry, musicians face even tougher situations when money is scarce and hunger is high. We are quicker to sign our names to something if we feel intimidated by people we think know more than we do and if we think we need them in order to get where we're going. The best way to ensure that doesn't happen is to educate ourselves so we enter into agreements with confidence, believing that we're not below anyone else and we have the right to question what they're offering. So first, identify your hangups. Is it the legal jargon? Is it the rush to get somewhere? Is it the fear of not having enough money to feel protected? Is it feeling invincible? 
Sometimes it may also be the feeling of not wanting to cause waves. When we feel as though the other side is the quote-unquote expert, we think, well, who am I to question them? They must know more than me. We sign what's in front of us thinking that if we take time to read it over, we'll be seen as if we don't trust them or we're questioning them. Can you guys relate to that? Because I definitely know I've been there. As someone who works with contracts on an almost daily basis, I'm constantly encouraging clients to take their time with what I send them, making sure they read it over carefully and contact me with any questions or concerns. As someone who wants a thriving collaboration, I want to make sure the other party I'm working with knows what they're getting into and is ready to show up in the way we've agreed upon. Reading contracts thoroughly helps not only you, but those you're going into contract with, so don't feel the need to rush the process. If someone is rushing you or making you feel as if they would be offended if you looked it over, bells and whistles should be going off in your head and you should really reconsider doing business with them. And let's be clear, it's always important to have a contract. It's not always about protecting yourself from a lawsuit. Contracts set the standard for what a certain collaboration will be and won't be. Even something as basic as a split sheet agreement, which is a simple form that collaborating songwriters fill out to delineate who's contributed what to a song in terms of ownership percentages, can not only protect you if someone tries to steal your music, but it also keeps everyone on the same page regarding copyright ownership. I sell copies of a split sheet agreement on my site, but I've provided a link for you to download it for free in the show notes. Simply go to therockstaradvocate.com forward slash EP14 to access it. As uncomfortable as it may feel to be the one to suggest all parties get the stuff down on paper, remind yourself you're not being paranoid, but rather providing clarity for everyone who's working together on a project. Getting the paperwork out of the way in the beginning can allow for a much smoother working relationship moving forward, as everyone can be clear on expectations, roles, and responsibilities. Now that I've explained the importance of having a contract and why some avoid it, I want to discuss the importance of understanding what is in the contract you're signing. So many artists make their goal to get a record deal. Based on what they see and hear, nothing is more legit than an artist who is signed to a label. It's important to know, however, that in this day and age, it's not and should not be the end-all be-all as far as goals go. A musician's focus should be on building an authentic, engaged fan base. However, in the chance that a label deal is in your future, it's important you be on the lookout for common clauses that many record deals have. While many of these clauses are non-negotiable for artists with little to no leverage, being aware of what you're signing will at least help you in making intelligent decisions moving forward, such as how you spend your advance or how you manage other streams of income. The Future of Music Coalition has a breakdown of many of these clauses with thorough explanation as to what they mean. I've put together a shortened rundown of the ones I think are most important for you to know, and I'm going to go through them in a moment. But I want to let you first know about this week's free download. As you may know, each week I provide free checklists or worksheets to take action on what we've discussed. This week I'm including a free download of my contracts ebook, which is for sale on my website. Inside you will find all the things we discussed here today, including these clauses and links to additional resources, including the Future of Music Coalition's more in-depth look at contracts. So stay with me, but don't worry about taking notes. It can all be found in the ebook that you can access in the show notes after our time here together is over. So let's begin. I must first protect us both by saying I am not a lawyer, and anything contained in this episode should not be construed as legal advice. 
always consult a lawyer before entering into an agreement. What I'm about to go over with you is for educational purposes only. Now that we've got that out of the way, the first clause you should know about is the transference of ownership clause. Unless otherwise decided by a court of law, you own 0% of any sound recording copyright created during the term of the contract. Now remember, there are two copyrights to every song, the underlying composition, controlled by the publisher, and the sound recording. You don't make any money off of your recordings if and until you sell enough to make back, aka recoup, all the money spent by the label on manufacturing, distributing, and advertising your record. Transferring your rights means that you no longer have the power to license the music to a third party, like a TV show, a film, a video game, commercial, and so on. This is one of the six exclusive rights to a copyright owner, and under your contract, that copyright owner is the label, not you. Even though you may remain the copyright owner of the underlying work, like the lyrics and melody, the contract will most likely include a clause that says no re-recordings will be allowed until all monies are recouped and or a specified amount of time has passed after your term is up under the contract, which brings us to the length of term and perpetuity clause. There is the term of the contract and then there is the term of ownership of your copyrights. While the contract period may end in 18 months or once an album is delivered, there are usually other clauses in the contract that affect your career and your ability to make money off of your music for a great deal longer. So make sure you're clear on all the deadlines and expiration dates laid out in the agreement. The key man clause is another matter you'll want to be familiar with and understand. The music industry often involves key relationships, as they say it is a who-you-know business. However, while you make it a record deal with or due to someone you know, the industry is also a fickle bitch, and that person who works so tirelessly for you may no longer be there and replaced by someone who sees you as just another notch on their roster. If, in the rarest cases, the key man clause is included in your contract, you would have the ability to get out of your contract if a certain person responsible for getting you the deal is severed or transferred from the label or agreement. So, before you go promising your ride-or-die team that you're all in this together, understand that you may have to ensure that they're taken care of all on your own. The label may very well decide to only do business with you and use their team moving forward. Next is understanding delivery versus acceptance. Your contract may very well have a delivery clause that demands you produce an album by a certain date. However, what it also may say is that the label has the authority of final acceptance, meaning they can deem whether or not material is considered commercially satisfactory or technically satisfactory. If you fail to deliver an acceptable album to the label within the given time frame, you may be liable for certain cures and remedies, also known as fines or termination. So moving on, the controlled composition clause deals with royalties. There are a number of royalties connected to a sound recording, mechanical royalties, sync royalties, performance royalties, the list goes on. So aside from advances, labels pay mechanical royalties to a songwriter for copies made of the sound recording, not counting promotional copies, which usually account for about 15% of the copies they make. So for instance, they're not going to count those 2,000 copies or reproductions they made of your sound recording to give out to other accounts or blog writers or viewers. 
that's all free. However, while the U.S. Copyright Office determines the statutory rate for royalties and increases it every two years to keep up with the cost of living, this clause, the Controlled Composition Clause, allows labels to create a loophole and limit the cost of mechanical royalties paid to the artist. This is where that whole points thing comes in. They assign artists points on a recording, which counts as percentages of the statutory rate, and they lock in the rate based on the date the contract was signed, regardless of when an album is delivered or sold. So let's say they shelve your album for two years, and within those two years, the statutory rate has increased. According to your contract, this clause will make it possible for the label to pay you the percentage of the rate that existed when you entered into the contract. In addition, while the Copyright Office increases the rate paid for songs over five minutes, this clause makes it possible for labels to pay the same rate for a two-minute song as they would a ten-minute anthem. The clause also puts a cap on the amount an artist can earn, paying only up to a ten-song album, while the Copyright Office allows for a higher royalty payment on albums with twelve songs or more. Additionally, royalties owed to other copyright owners for samples or covers or, say, a producer's exclusive track that go beyond this cap may be paid out by the artist. If I lost you anywhere to catch you up, the controlled composition clause basically fucks you if you plan to make any money from your songs. But let's keep going. (laughs) The cross-collateralizational clause is even more fun. It states if you have a new contract with the label, say after the term of your first contract is up, or you go into another contract with an affiliate company, this clause is commonly in there to make sure any future royalties you make under the new contract can be used to recoup any and all monies not recouped under the prior contract. So let's say you had a contract with them, you didn't sell enough to fully recoup them from the last contract, future contracts can still hold you accountable to what you owe from the last contract. So consider it the song that never ends. Yes, it goes on and on, my friend. The Reserve Limits Accounting and Audits Clause is a little kinder, but not by much. In case an artist ever feels that there is a discrepancy in the royalty payments they received, the label has most likely already placed this clause in the contract because it limits the amount of time an artist has to secure an audit of a label's financial records. It also limits the conditions under which they may request an audit and the form in which the audit is paid for. I'll give you a hint, it's usually paid for by the artist. Now, the cost of an audit out-of-pocket often exceeds the amount by which any discrepancy in royalties may exist. In other words, by the time you hire someone to perform the audit, you've already lost more money than the amount you may feel you're owed. It's purposely made very difficult for an artist to audit their label. It is suggested that this be a talking point before signing a contract in order to get a feel for the transparency and good faith that exists at the label. Have I bummed you out enough already? Now, I'm not saying that labels are the devil, but they're out to protect themselves and their investment. As much as you'd like them to pay for all your shit, it's important to realize the actual costs of doing so, which is why I believe it's foolish to build a career in music for the sole purpose of being signed. It doesn't mean you shouldn't take a deal, it simply means you should focus on making the best deal for your situation, whatever that may be, and educating yourself on these points is the best way to know what that deal looks like for you. 
Even though it's important to rely on a professional, it's important that you familiarize yourself with terms you commonly find in legal documents. Knowing the language allows you to be able to ask the right questions and catch something that may be off. Consider this your little audio pocket cheat sheet. And remember, these terms are also found in the ebook that's available for download in the show notes at therockstaradvocate.com forward slash EP14. The first term I want to go over is advance. An advance is money given to artists to cover expenses of an album recoupable by the lender from sales. Like I said before, the record label will give you an advance But don't go spending that all right away because they will expect to recoup that advance from the songs you sell. And if you don't sell enough songs, you can very well be liable for paying the rest of that advance back to them. Assignment. Assignment means transferring terms, rights, or obligations of a contract from one party to a third party. So let's say a label decides to assign certain rights or obligations from their contract with you to another company. Copyright versus trademark. A copyright protects a literary, dramatic, or artistic work, like your lyrics or the sound recording. A trademark protects a word, phrase, or symbol, such as your logo. Now, cure is the term they use to describe the ways in which a party can amend or make acceptable something to the other party in a specified amount of time before they are found in violation of the terms of the contract. Okay, so in layman's terms, it means that if you violate the terms of the contract or the label or other party violates the terms of the contract, they have a time in which to cure, which means they have a time to make right what they might have done wrong. So if you accidentally missed a deadline or if you didn't give something that was acceptable, you have a time usually to cure it and make it right before you're found in violation. Delivery means the terms or date in which an artist is expected to produce an acceptable product to the label. Don't forget what we just discussed about deadlines and deliveries versus what's acceptable. Just because you make that deadline doesn't mean you've fulfilled your end of the bargain. They have to deem it acceptable. Exclusive rights are the rights afforded to copyright owners with the ability to license their work to others. Now, in the ebook, I go through all six exclusive rights. So if you want to know what those are, they can be found in the free download. Now, force majeure, people see this and they're just like, oh, that looks like a different language. What's force majeure? It's a clause that frees all parties from liability or obligation to uphold the contract due to acts of God or forces beyond their control, like a tornado or hurricane or anything like that. So if a tornado comes through and completely annihilates a label's offices, they are not liable for giving you certain copies of things or documents that might have been lost. And the contract might also just be terminated if they can't financially fulfill their obligations because of the tornado or act of God, whatever that might be. I also want you to know the difference between a licensor and a licensee. The party granting permission is the licensor, and the party obtaining the license is the licensee. Now, master use is permission needed from the owner of a master recording, in most cases the label, in order to use a sound recording. The term option is the irrevocable right of a label to extend the contract at the end of the term. Basically, whether you want to or not, they have the power to extend the term of your contract. 
Now, recoupment, as we've gone over it, is money earned from sales used to pay off the advances by a lender, such as the record label. The term renewal is the right of one or both of the parties to continue the term of the contract for a specified amount of time. So the option given in a contract means that the label can renew the contract for a specified amount of time. You don't have that option. The term royalty is money paid to copyright owners for the use of their music. Severability, this is an important one. This explains that each of the clauses of a contract are to be treated separately in case one clause is deemed invalid or unlawful. That means that the other clauses will still hold as enforceable, ensuring that finding an issue with one clause will not sever the entire agreement. So let's say you see something in the clause that your lawyer has said to you, hey, that's unlawful. And then you go to the label and say, haha, our contract is null and void because this particular paragraph is unlawful. Well, it's not because they've probably included a severability clause in there that says, okay, that particular paragraph is unlawful, but the rest of the contract still holds. The term synchronization is combining or syncing music with visual arts such as a film, an ad, a video game, and so on. The term, as we've discussed with the renewal and option um, vocabulary, refers to either a length of time or a number of albums in which the contract is in play or active. So the term might be 18 months or the term might be two EPs you know, or two albums. It depends what you all agree on. The term territory is the geographical area in which a label is granted permission to sell an artist's music. Usually, it's listed as global, meaning they can make deals and sell it anywhere. If you're signing with maybe an independent label or a smaller company, they might say, okay, we have the territory and the right to sell within North America. And then you would have the right to go sell and control your music in any other territory. So those are the most common terms you'll want to familiarize yourself with so that you're able to ask the right questions. Now, speaking of questions, the last thing I want to touch upon in today's episode are questions you'll want to ask when hiring a lawyer. And yes, these questions are also found in the ebook. When you are paying someone to look after your best interest, you shouldn't just hand that responsibility over to anyone. The client-lawyer relationship is a sacred one, so make sure you take the time to properly vet the attorney you decide to work with. Donald S. Passman, author of All You Need to Know About the Music Business, aka the Bible of the music industry, provides guidelines in his book for properly interviewing your attorney. The following are examples of questions, much like the ones found in his book, that you can use to make sure you found your match. Should you have other questions you want to make sure you ask, there's a space in the ebook for you to jot those down. Number one is, what is your experience with the music industry and entertainment law specifically? How many years have you practiced? This is important because being a lawyer doesn't mean they know the law of your particular industry. Don't ask Uncle Ted, a divorce attorney, to negotiate a record contract for you. He will most likely be unfamiliar with the current rates, fees, advances, and so on. Number two is, what charges can I expect beyond legal fees? What costs of labor are charged to your clients? This is important because many musicians don't realize that every time they call their attorney or the attorney calls them or they make photocopies or they cover meals or postage, it's usually on the client's dime. Number three is, may I take a copy of your retainer or fee agreement home with me to review? Can you also walk me through it? 
This is important because just like any other contract, you want to know how transparent the person you're working with is willing to be. If they charge you for going over the terms of working with them, you may want to think twice about whether or not it's a good fit. Number four is always good to ask, what other musicians have you worked with and what level of their career were they at when they started working with you? Is there anyone that would cause a conflict of interest? I'll be honest, I usually hate the question, who have you worked with? Because it shouldn't matter to you who has hired me, but rather the results I've gotten for my clients. I'm not in charge of the deals they sign or who they do business with. Beyond how much time I spend with them, the type of work that I do with someone who may be signed to a label is not any different than the work I would do with an independent. But when it comes to hiring a lawyer, it's important to know who they have worked with because you want to know the types of deals they've negotiated as you don't want to be paying top dollar for an attorney who's used to cutting major label deals if you're just starting out. In addition, knowing who their actual clients are is important in order to know if a conflict of interest may exist. Number five is how accessible are you in case of an emergency? Just like interviewing a doctor, it's important to know what the protocols are should an emergency arise. Will you be able to reach them directly or will one of their underlings be assigned to help you? Number six is also an important one. In what states are you able to practice law? Much like not relying on a divorce attorney to negotiate your deal, an attorney who practices law in California may not be familiar with certain state laws that exist in New York and not legally allowed to practice in your state. And lastly, you'll want to ask, have you ever taken suits to court? If so, how many? Again, it's important to know their level of experience, not to say you shouldn't work with a lawyer who hasn't been to court, but you should want to know that up front. Alright, is your head spinning yet? If you're still with me, I applaud your tenacity and I encourage you to go through the show notes and download the free ebook as it will walk you through everything we discussed here today, plus what you'll need to know in regards to copyrights and so much more. Everything we discussed can be found at therockstaradvocate.com forward slash EP14. Thanks so much for listening, Rockstar. I hope you found this information helpful and empowering. Never run away from something simply because it's new information. When you're faced with a legal task, take the time to educate yourself so you don't get screwed. If you've enjoyed what you've learned today, you can also access all current episodes using your podcast platform of choice, whether it be iTunes or Spotify or something else, or by visiting the rockstaradvocate.com forward slash podcast. In the meantime, if there's any way I can help you overcome certain business hurdles, break down new information, or get some clarity on whatever it is you're going through, I'd be more than happy to. Feel free to email me at any time, suz, S-U-Z, at therockstaradvocate.com. Until next time, Rockstar, have a wonderful week, and I hope to see you back here next Wednesday so we can get grounded to get rising. Take care.